we were doing some international volunteer work in 2001 and 2002. And actually, we went through Cambodia on holiday to see the famous Angkor Wat temples. And I've always wanted to see them. They're so gorgeous. They're up in the northwestern corner, right? Yes, yeah, yeah they're beautiful. Millions of tourists come through there every year. We just really fell in love with the people and the country and, and saw the need. So in 2003, we went back and we were trying to source a project that maybe we could work through an organization that was already established there, but we didn't find one that we felt we could trust at the time. And so we decided to do it right. We'd have to form our own nonprofit, 2003 and 2004, and then uh, moved over there in 2005. And we had met with the district officials to find out what they needed. Our past experience as a volunteer really taught us things that were made things successful. So we knew that we had to find out what they wanted, what they needed, not to bulldoze in, but more of a bottom-up approach. Also participatory. So they've got to have some skin in the game. They've got to have some ownership. And that's what makes a project successful. So working with the district then, we do work within a government development system. And so they tell us what the needs are, and that's how we find where to go work in the province. And our first project that we agreed to do was actually the construction of a government school. So now, how did you get on to this particular province? And tell us where it is in Cambodia. Sure. Well, Angkor Wat Temples is in close to the Siem Reap city, and that is in the northwest corner. Yes, up above Tonle Sap Lake. Phnom Penh is the capital, and that's down in the southeast side. So they're far away from central resources. Yes, and when we first went through in 2002, it just, I mean, it was like dust. I mean, there was the develop, they were really an underdeveloped country. Going across the border from we came in through Bangkok, and uh, coming across the Thai border into Cambodia was uh, just shocking. It was like night and day in terms of development? Yes, night and day. I mean, now it's rather deceiving because of all the tourists that come through. They've really, it looks like it's flourishing. I mean, there's, you can get a guest house for $3 a night or a hotel room for $1,000 a night. But the money that comes in from the tourists doesn't filter out to really help the people. And that's what we saw is, I mean, they're, they're people who, they're proud, but they just need a kickstart. Their history, if, if anyone's familiar with the Khmer Rouge regime, which happened in 1975 to 79, millions of people were either starved to death or, or executed. Yeah, I think we got familiar with that genocide with the help of the film, The Killing Fields. And that's something that's always stuck in my mind. Would you say that the tourist sites then are very developed, but when you go into rural areas, you see a big contrast? Yes, for sure. And you really don't even have to go that far. Even within the city, you can still see people living in extreme poverty. I mean, they're just surviving. They might pay $10 a month to have a little room that's just a plywood as big as a piece of plywood with metal walls, um, no running water, no electricity. And we, for the most part, are working in the rural areas um, 
which they're they're still plowing with you know oxen and water buffalo um, but the thing with what happened in, with the Khmer Rouge is that they wiped out anyone that had any intelligence I mean a whole generation of intellect and mentors is gone so they were the people with the biggest skill sets and yeah doctors teachers if you wore glasses they thought that meant you were intelligent <laughs> so they really upset the whole country in that regard because now they've they're starting really from ground up starting all over again and and you can it is progressing finally but it's been three decades that they're still struggling to get through that and to learn and to really start over so they lost their leadership as well as skilled people i mean the leaders then that were left were basically you know the Khmer Rouge yeah, I find their history really interesting. Did you feel a sense that the effects of the Khmer Rouge and that awful genocide time period still linger in some ways? I mean, you will see a few old people um, who probably would have incredible stories to tell you. And even those that are friends of ours that are in their late 40s, have some pretty horrendous stories to tell you. Anyone that's 30 and younger, they weren't part of it, obviously, but they are missing relatives, you know, aunts, uncles, grandparents. And still, I think those that are in power... The I'm pro- rolling my eyes, that's why you're <laughs> giggling. We'll have to tell radio people that. <laughs> the prime minister, you know, is pretty much controlling um, Yes, I guess he's the longest-serving non-royal um, leader in Southeast Asia, so he's been in power since 1985. That's a long time. Yeah, but there are strides. I think the younger folks are now, uh, there's a new, I think it's called a Libertarian Party, and so there are the three different parties, um, and they're working on it. They're working on getting more control of their country, I guess, so to speak, and uh, changing some rules and some laws. I've, I've seen a lot of change happen that are helping the local people. They now actually have like a social security system and they're starting to collect money, collecting income tax for to help the people. And I think it was a few years ago that they actually added English as a government curriculum. Wow. So are people looking at the government's role as one of there to help people? Or is there still a sense that basically help is is more localized? They get some money for municipal projects and things like that. And so uh, there is a system. They know it's there. And, of course, we build the government schools only because they are supported by the government, the teachers, the curriculum, the salaries. But our main work that we're doing is in getting people clean water to drink and access to water. That's our health program is our biggest program. Second to that, once people have water, that basic need, uh, then they start to think outside the box. And with access to water, they can irrigate a home garden or that sort of thing. And so we also have our well drilling and we make what we call biosand water filters. And then with our food security program is really just teaching them 
better practices, organic pesticides, composting, things like that, earthworms, just to help them have a more successful home garden to feed their family better. So I understand your project started with the school and then kind of the town took off from there really was a catalyst for lots of change. Yeah. I mean, the village that we were told about where the school was needed, the district officials, they said no one else would help this village. It was one of the poorest out of 100 in his district. But for some reason, whether it was too far, too difficult to get to, just no other organization would go in there and help. And so they took us out there, and it was. It was just (laughs) dirt and scrub and... Well, they have the rice fields, um, but this particular village was so poor. I mean, it's just uh, hard to describe the abject poverty that was so apparent, and because people were so poor. I mean, the men, they just drank, you know, and um, there wasn't really any employment. The homes were, for the most part, like wood or just thatch, you know, palm leaf. So the young men and women didn't really feel a sense of where they could fit into their future or make their future happen. Yeah, there may have been people that uh, would go across the border and work at Thailand in Thailand, um, but there there was a lot of hopelessness there. I think. Mm-hmm. And how far from the Thai border are they? I mean, like a day's walk, or? Well, at that time. It was probably a 11-hour drive. Now, it would only be about a two-and-a-half-hour drive because the roads are improved. But just to even get into Siem Reap City, it's about 35 kilometers. So maybe slowly influence from the outside is, is coming through the West, through Thailand, more contact with the outside. Well, yeah, and I think it's just more employment opportunities, you know, um, in, I mean, now that Seam Reap is getting to be more progressive to accommodate the tourist industry, there's more work there for sure. Definitely, you know, restaurants, hotels, things like that, serve the service industry. But again, I don't know that the wages are that great, and that, but that's another thing that we actually in our organization is feeling the impact because the government is raising the minimum wage for non-skilled and skilled workers. And so we're beginning to have a challenge in keeping staff and finding new staff when we do lose someone. So that that's a good thing, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds like progress. So when you got there, there was no school. M- much of the neighborhood was pretty desolate, if you will. Yes. And homes were extremely simple. There wasn't a, a consistent supply of clean water. Correct. There was very little water. I mean, they, they took us and showed us these, what they call a traditional pit well, that they just dig a hole. And when it rains, it fills up. And, of course, whatever's in the field, you know, animal feces, human feces, all of that gets flushed down in there. And so, I mean, it's it's really disgusting. It's green and nasty and... You know, kids have fallen in and drowned, and um, but that's the only one of their sources they have. That or maybe a little river that or creek, you know, that would run through the the land. So no rain cisterns. A few houses may have, like the big jars, mm-hmm. to collect rain. Now tell us about the climate. How long is the dry season? 
You've got about six months of drought and six months of rain. So rain can't be a a regular source of water. No, no. What else struck you when you first got there? Were there any kinds of employments like um, cottage industries that women were doing? There probably were closer to the towns. But out in the rural areas, it's just subsistence farming for the most part. And if you own any kind of livestock, that raises you two levels of poverty. Cows are really expensive. It was about $700, and this was probably 10 years ago. Wow, that is something. And now they're probably 1500 for a good, a decent cow. And so not too many goats or things that can kind of fend for themselves more easily? Nah, the, the main livestock, you see ducks, chickens, pigs, cows, water buffaloes. I would assume that it was a pretty homogeneous group. They're 97% Buddhist, and I guess 95% are a specific sect of Buddhism, Theravada. So this is a pretty homogeneous group of people? Yeah, and they're very communal. And when someone gets married, it's actually the man moves in with the wife's family. Oh, that's interesting. That's a different twist. (laughs) Matrilinear. (laughs) I see. But obviously extended families and so forth. Oh, yes. I mean, family is very, very important, and they'll do anything to support their family. I mean, family comes first, for sure. And I think, too, from the Khmer Rouge days, uh, money didn't mean anything. I mean, it was a blowing in the streets because the value had just fallen out with that whole uh, genocide situation. So people didn't trust banks. When they did have any money, they they would get some sort of a, of an asset. So they'd either buy a gold bracelet or, you know, of course now they'll buy, it's getting better for a lot and they'll have a motorbike or whatever. So, but if there's a funeral or somebody gets sick or there's a wedding, they'll sell that. Right. Commodities, trading economy. The men would forage maybe in the fields or the, they'd go to the forest to, you know, chop down for firewood and uh, the women took care of the kids and did the cooking and the cleaning and and the women would do most of the farming? Yeah, if they had a garden. Um, but at that time when we went in, you know, there was just very little going on because they had no access to water and um, and they were far enough away and they didn't, ha- you know, from town, they probably not too many of them worked. They really are very entrepreneurial and it's easy to help people who want to help themselves. And that's what I see is they just, they're hungry for that kickstart. They don't have the options and opportunities like in the Western world. So, for example, uh, were tools scarce, simple hand tools? Oh, yeah. I, I, yeah, they're, they're quite the MacGyvers. Uh-huh. <laughs> and seeds? Well, if they retained any seeds, uh, but yeah, I mean, you can buy them in the markets, and there's local markets that are mm, from that particular village. Um, I think the closest market was probably 15 kilometers away. Oh, okay, so that's maybe once a week at best. You could send uh, one family member to go buy something? Yeah, the mango trees or the banana trees, I mean, they pretty much eat what's in season. 
as it rotates through the season. But you know, the rice is their main, main food. It's a staple. And so hopefully their rice field, they can grow enough to last them all year long. Because they eat it three days, three times a day. <laughs> wow, yeah, that is a lot of rice, <laughs> and six months to get through of the of the dry season, storing the rice. Now, do they grow a surplus so that they can actually sell the rice, or they need it all themselves, pretty much? Well, it depends on how big. I mean, there are some that have just a very small rice field, but then there are those who do have large ones, and and they actually have what they call a rice bank. But the one thing too in this village. Once the word was out that there was going to be a school built there, land values increased. And so I think what kick-started some of that development was the people who had larger sections of land sold some off, and then they could build a better home. And we got some wells in, and so then they had you know water for their gardens. And it was just a really amazing what's happened, you know, even in just a few years, what they what they've accomplished in that village. Yeah, it sounds like the whole village came alive with all kinds of projects, but it started with the school. So did they identify that that's what they would like to do initially? Oh, yeah. Um, And actually, the development occurs at a village-based process. So the villagers tell their chief what their needs are, and it could be schools, latrines, water, livestock, family violence training. I mean, just... A whole variety of things and then the village chief takes it to the commune and the commune takes it to the district and then every fall about this time of year they the district convenes what they call an integrated workshop and so all of these identified needs are listed on a piece of paper and the papers are pasted up around the room and because of our relationship with the government and our reputation we are one of a handful of NGOs, non-government organizations that get invited to these meetings. And that's how we find where the need is. And um, we then sign agreements to say, okay, we'll go into this village next with water filters or wells or agriculture training. And so that's how we... So you had to build some trust right off. Yeah. And I think because we are working with the government, that is a big plus. I mean, not only do we have their cooperation and permission, but I think we also have their respect Mm -hmm. because there are a lot of organizations that kind of bulldoze in. They are well-meaning, but they don't go through a government process. They just go in and do their own thing. And uh, yeah, I've, I've interviewed many people who that's the model that they just helicopter in kind of thing. They literally sort of drop in from the sky and bring their ideas and the how-to and everything else uh, and work in total isolation. So it sounds like this was a much more sophisticated project. Yeah, and I, I think, too, the, the villagers know that working with the, you know, there's a lot of paperwork that we had to do. And everybody probably was appreciative <laughs> of somebody who would, who would wrangle the paperwork. Yeah, and so they, I think they also respected us for sticking in there to do it right. And I think, too, that that then gave us the reputation because we had heard that a lot of organizations come in and they do a study and they say they're going to come back, but they don't. And so villagers were really didn't trust the fact that 
yeah, you say you're going to build a school, then, you know. Are you really? Right. right. And so we, we really made it our commitment. If we said we were going to do something, we're going to do it. And now, of course, we've been there since 2005. And we've done everything that we've said we do, and so we have a reputation of a getter done. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're good news. Right, okay, so you got your permission, and then the project started. Describe the project of putting up the school. Well, um, I'll back up a little bit because although we got there in January of 2005, we knew right away that we'd have to get the paperwork, okay, with the government. Well, that process took about six months. We had to make many, 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 many bus trips down to Phnom Penh to go to the ministry offices. Okay, and how far away is that? How long does that take? Well, it's about a six-hour bus ride or a three-hour taxi ride, something like that. It was a real challenge because we'd have to make the trip down to pick up a piece of paper and take it from one office over to the other. So anyway... um, Yeah, I'm amazed you got that done in six months. Wow. Yeah. So that was a real uh, experience. And then through that experience and knowing we were going to be wanting to build a school, we thought, well, you know, we don't know where to find a contractor. And so one of the district officials had a son who was working for another, a Swiss organization at the time, uh, and they were rebuilding one of the temples. And he said, well, he might have a few hours to help you. you know. So anyway, so we hired him on basically on an hourly basis, and he helped us find the contractor. And the big thing was just really raising the money. Right. So tell me all about that. How did that happen? <laughs> I'm trying to remember. Because, yeah, evidently it was something like $60,000 that you needed for the school. Yeah. Well, I actually cashed in my an IRA to make sure that we were going to have the money for it. Um, We had some donors back in the States that basically had been friends, and so they they were quite supportive in the beginning. Yeah, and then I think through a friend in town who owned a business connected us with uh, the British Schools Foundation. There was a representative that was in town, and he said, you got to talk to this guy because he's um, really involved in education. And so... I believe they paid for about half of the school. And then we just got in other donations from individuals, and we used some of our own money to make it happen. Wow, very personal project. Okay, so you inspired a bunch of people to come on board. (laughs) So then what are the construction materials that you had to secure? The local contractor basically is in charge of all that, It's pretty much like your red brick, little red bricks, and concrete and rebar. Mm -hmm. And then the the door frames and window frames are wood with rebar, and then they make wooden shutters and wooden doors. It's all Cambodian workers, and part of, again, this skin in the game that we require is that we asked the contractor that he hire as many people as possible from the village you know, so one, they're participating. Two, they're learning a skill that maybe they can go get a job at another time. And then three, they're making a little bit of money. And so it works. And that's always our policy is that they hire 
the local labor pool that are going to be the beneficiaries of, of ultimately of the school. Because it is for the community. They use they use it for the school, but then they have, you know, community meetings there, hold elections in those buildings, um, you know, all sorts of any kind of community event. Yeah, I've heard of these um, some schools turning into community centers, if you will. It's just a natural to continue to use the building in other hours than in other ways. Great. So a lot of people had buy-in um, in terms of physically being a part of the the team that made this school happen. Mm-hmm. So how big a school is it? It's a six-classroom building. So how many students might that serve? It can accommodate 480 because mm-hmm. they have morning sessions or afternoon sessions, and there's 40 students per classroom. And this is um, all ages? Well, actually kindergarten through sixth grade. And most of the children probably are five when they go in but because this village had no school of the 180 students at the time that lived in that village if my math if I remember correctly there had only been like 18 that had actually walked to a neighboring village to go to school Um, oh wow so whatever age they started their education at was starting at the beginning Correct. So some of the students were even 15 years old, you know, when they started, but they also progressed really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and we actually had then a year later had to build a second building. After sixth grade or so, they have to go off to another town? Okay. Yeah. Well, that makes sense, but you've got everybody caught up. Yeah. And the secondary level schools are further apart and so actually it was several years ago uh, a government representative came to our door from the Department of Education and asked if we would start distributing bicycles because students would just drop out if the distance was too far. Sure a bike could be a great thing right. Yeah and sometimes it's the only mode of transportation for the whole family. So did you did you wrangle some bicycles and how did that happen? Well yes we did. Uh, Again we just put out the plea, and uh, we can buy secondhand refurbished bicycles there, pretty reasonable, for $55. So we managed to uh, get a truckload and distribute them to the students that were going off to the secondary level. And we still do do that. I'm picturing wide tires and dirt dirt roads. (laughs) Yeah, for the most part. The school now has been operating since 06? More or less, something like that. So we had spent the six months getting our paperwork in order, getting a business account set up, and then the rainy season hit. (laughs) Oh, boy, and the mud with it, right? And uh, we had managed, knowing that there was going to be the need for water to make concrete, we had managed to get two wells in on opposite corners of the school site. And so we couldn't get out there for five months. And we managed to finally go visit... And let them know that, you know, yes, we still want to make this good effort here, that that we're going to do this. And it was, I think, right around Christmas 2005 that they broke ground. And it was completed within six months. 